Well, it's, it's Easter, so we're going to talk this morning about the gospel, about the fact that Christ gave his life for us, the fact that we could have our sins forgiven in a right relationship with God through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to talk about the fact that the tomb is empty, that Christ is risen. Think about that as you've, as you've heard that scripture passage read. How long did it take for those who first went to the tomb on that first morning and they they find the tomb empty, and as they're beginning to put the pieces of the story together, and some of them see the risen Christ, how long before they said, this is life-changing. This changes everything. Game-changer for all of human history. At any point, would they have realized that some 2,000 years later, you and I would be sitting here in this building still talking about what happened that morning, that millions of Christians around the world would be talking about them and what they saw that morning. It changes everything. John even said in the last couple verses that you heard Kevin read, he said that John, John says, I've recorded these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. John knew these things were transformational truths. So that's what I want to think about this morning. Not just do you believe the resurrection, do you believe that Easter is important, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but do you believe that the truths are life-changing, that your entire life will change. I want to talk to you about what it means to have a transformed life. So let's think about that. Ask that question. What does it mean to have this kind of life, the good life, the abundant life? Earlier in John, Jesus said that he came, that we would have life and have it abundantly. What does abundant life look like? What does the good life look like? If you could take a blank slate of paper and say, I'm going to write out my life, what would it look like? What would entail? What would the big moments of the life be? How big would your house be? How large would your bank account be? What is the good life? I brought with me this morning the game of life. Do you guys, how many of you played the game of life back in the day? Anybody have a version this old? I'm not sure where my family picked this up, because Anna and I don't play this yet, but it's got those, you know, the, I, this has got to be 80s or 90s is my guess. So you know how this works. You play the game, you uh, take the chance, you, uh, there's certain big milestones that you get through in life, and everybody takes a chance at the game of life, right? Oh, I just lost the spinning wheel, so I can't do it. But you start and you decide, am I going to go to college? Am I going to do the career? At some point, you get a house. At some point, you get, well, first you get a job. How big is the bank account going to be? And then perhaps you get married, you get a house, you start having kids, you work your way through the ups and downs of life. And what's the end game? What's the goal? You retire in the millionaire estates. Now that's, that's life, right? Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Could you imagine, this is, this is like something like a 30 or 50 year old version of the game of life. If they were to make the game of life, uh, there's things are different, there's different milestones now, you know, in terms of getting a job, getting a house, getting married, what would the milestones be? Um, it's, it's not so much today isn't about with the generation coming up, the collection of things, but experiences are very, very important. So, you know, instead of getting a house, the big milestone might be moving out of mom and dad's basement, that kind of, that kind of thing. Now, I don't, I don't mean to be critical of the generation coming up. I'm not. Because 
because we would be foolish if we thought that, that those of us who used the previous milestones had any different outlook on life than, than the new generation coming up. It's the exact same outlook on life. It just looks differently, right? And so we look at that and we say, uh, 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 what, what is life? What's the abundant life? What is the good life? And, and, and for some of us here this morning, my fear is that we are looking for life in the wrong places. We, we look at the good life and we come up with the wrong markers. It has nothing to do with whether or not we get a house or whether or not we get married and these kinds of things, though God might include those in our lives. But the good life is different than that. And my fear is, is that some of us are looking for life in the wrong places. My fear is that some of us look at life and say, well, the good life, the abundant life is the collection of things. Some of us look and say it's the collection of experiences. Going, going the right places, having the right friends, going on the right kinds of trips. And, and, and so we look at our, our bank accounts and our portfolios and we look at the things we've gotten to do and the experiences that we've gotten to have and we say this is where we're going to find life or at least we think that we will. And so as you try to fold God into that picture, it's like, well, I don't have much time for God because as I look at life, what I want out of my life, God doesn't fit into that. And so... Well, frankly, you don't find yourself in church very often, but every now and then on a special day like this, you might. Is that, is that you? My guess is a few of you have second thoughts about your decision to come into church this morning. You said, wait a minute, I thought people went to church to feel good, and he's stepping on my toes this morning. So, I don't, I, 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 let, let me encourage you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the person next to you. So let me give like equal opportunity offense this morning. Christians do this too. Christians who show up in church every single day do the same kind of thing. Even though we believe in God, we believe in the gospel, we could quote the resurrection forwards and backwards, and yet somehow we still come up with a different version of life than Jesus intended. When he says, I told you these things so that you would have life and that you would have it more abundantly so that you would find life in my name, somehow we still come up with a different version of what we think God and life and church ought to be. And so we know we need to believe the gospel, and yet we fold it into this concept, well, church is another one of those good things that, that fits into the good life, and so church better meet my needs. That's why I come to church to feel good. And, and I, I know people aren't perfect, but it'd be nice if we had a pretty perfect, close to perfect church. It'd be nice to be a part of a church where no one sinned against me. That'd be the kind of church I'd want to be a part of. And if I ever sin against someone else, hopefully they just have thick skin and we don't have to, right? We, we just want, we want the good life. We come up with our own definition of it. So now I think I've come close to stepping on almost everybody's toes. Pastors do this too. We do. It's too embarrassing to go into, so I'll move on. <laughs> but where, is, where do you find the good life? And what does it look like to have an abundant life? And so I recognize we've got a few different groups of people here this morning. Some of you are faithful uh, in the terms of your church attendance. Maybe Shawnee is your home church and you are regularly in church most every Sunday. Some of you uh, are a part of other churches, but you're here visiting family. And, and so I recognize that you, you know the Easter story forwards and backwards. And where are you finding life? 
Some of you are here because today's a special day. And maybe family invited you. You don't come to church often, but you at least wanted to be here. Some of you would call Shawnee your church home. There's a little overlap between these two categories. That some of you would call Shawnee your church home, but life gets busy with other things. And whether it's children or experiences or trips down the shore, whatever it might be, you're just not able to be in church much. And so my question is, does life, that life you're living, does it satisfy to Christians that are here in church every single week, is, is, you, is what you call the good life, is it satisfying? Are you finding fulfillment? For those of you who, so some of you are here because you knew you needed to be here, but you're not sure you buy into all of this. You're not sure that life can be found in Jesus. And I, I acknowledge that. I, I, I thank you for at least being here. And I would ask that you would listen as we go through this this morning and see, is it possible that Jesus truly does have life? And then I would ask, the life you're living, does it satisfy your outlook on life? Is it what you want? Or is, is there something else that you haven't found yet? Have you found life? Some of you have heard me walk through those categories and you'd say, that doesn't, none of those fit me. You know, I'm suffering and hurting so much that I am under no illusions that this world is life, that the pleasures of this world, they're meaningless to me. If you knew the health diagnosis I have lived through this last year, the things relating to my future, the relational conflict in family or friends, some of you are in so much suffering and hurt that it is very easy for you you to acknowledge that the American dream is not life. And you're saying, where is Jesus in that? Does he have life? And I, and I want to encourage you that he does. There is life. In fact, that's why John said he wrote the book. He recorded these things about Jesus so that we would believe who he is and so that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we would have life in his name. This is where life is found, and this is what I want to walk through with you this morning. As a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and, and we've been focusing on these final hours of Christ's life, and now we've come to Sunday morning, resurrection morning, and, and John wants us to see that, that John wants us to catch and grasp. Why does he want us to understand that there is life in Jesus' name, he wants us to realize that the truth of the gospel and the fact that we celebrate Easter is not just a mental assent or a, a mental acknowledgement that the facts of the resurrection are true, but it's transformational. It's life-giving. It's truly where life can be found. And that's why John wrote the book. You've got a quote in your bulletin by a man named Charles Simeon, and this is what he had to say about this account. He says, merely to prove to us that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, would have been a fruitless task unless our believing of that record would conduce to our benefit. But the apostles knew that our whole salvation depends on it. And therefore, in transmitting an account of our Savior's miracles, he sought to bring us to the enjoyment of life. You see, when we truly come to understand the gospel and the truth of the resurrection, it, it, it not only gives us hope for the forgiveness of sins, but it brings a meaning and a joy of life that there is no greater life that can, than can be found in who Jesus is. And this morning, as we walk through John chapter 20, I want you to hear the testimonies and the stories of several who came to faith and understanding in Christ, but primarily, we're going to focus in on a man named Thomas, and we're just going to focus on the end of the chapter. And you're going to see that he has 
had some skepticism, I think you could say. History has dubbed him Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure that's the fairest representation of him as if he was a hardened critic, but we'll walk through some of that. But I want you to see how he moved from unbelief to belief. And so this morning I'm asking you, do you believe? Not do you know that Easter is important. Not do you know that Jesus rose from the dead. But is Jesus where you find life? Have all of your hopes and dreams and future been staked on the person of who Jesus is? Have you found this life? Now let's walk through the text as we go through John chapter 20. And let me explain some of it. Let, let you hear some of the people and how they came to faith in Christ and what some of these things mean. Because for several years, remember, they had been hearing Jesus and they had been hearing His teaching and several of them banked their lives that Jesus really was the Messiah, that He was the hope, that He was the future, that He was the King who was going to overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as a nation. And yet what they weren't expecting was for their king to be crucified by a violent mob through an unjust trial in the middle of the night. They, were, they had no category for that. They had seen Jesus bring others back to life. They had watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but they had no category for thinking that their king, their Messiah, could come back to life. So as they went to the tomb on that resurrection morning, that was a dark morning. They didn't come to the tomb as excited as you came to church this morning with the anticipation that the tomb was empty. They had no category for that. They were coming to weep and to grieve, and they were trying to sort out life and say, where do you find life? I thought we found life. I thought his name was Jesus. I didn't expect him to die on the cross. And now they were trying to figure out where's life? What happened to that abundant life he was talking about? So that's the mindset you've got to see when we jump in to chapter 20, verse 1. So in chapter 20, verse 1, now on the first day of the week, that Sunday morning after Passover, Jesus has now been in the tomb. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We don't have time to walk all the way through the passage, but I wanted to read that one. It's significant that John tells us Mary's the first one to go to the tomb and she's going to prepare. She brought some spices to anoint the body and, and she was going to continue the grieving process and she gets there and she sees the stone rolled away. Now, for a moment, let me step away from this point and speak to some of you that are still skeptical, wondering, is this really true? I mean, is the tomb really empty? How do I know that we can speak to some of this? And let me be transparent and honest that as you look at the gospel accounts of the resurrection, there are different recordings of how some of these things went down. There's several questions that we ask ourselves along the way. We, we, we ask these kinds of questions of what, how many women went to the tomb? How many angels were there? Who, to whom did Jesus appear and in what order? Because as you look at the way the four men write their accounts, there's differences. But let me encourage you that differences are not necessary contradictions. Just because they're different doesn't mean they're contradictory. In fact, remember that we have one gospel. There is one good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's not four gospels. There's one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each give their perspective of that one gospel account. And in fact, that's the way in the early church the, the gospel was distributed. It was bound together in one book shortly after they wrote them. And you've got the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel 
gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and here the gospel according to John. They're telling the good news. In fact, those differences aren't proof of contradictions that prove this isn't true. Those differences speak to the truth of the resurrection because this is exactly what you would expect to find if the story was true. That you have four different people in this supernatural event. They witness it and they're giving you their perspectives and they each remember different details and they're not telling you things that are contradictory but they're telling you stories that fit together and they each remember different pieces of it and it ought to affirm uh, our faith that if something supernatural natural like this happened, this is exactly what you would expect to find. What, if it was true that this was all a joke, if it's true that the tomb really wasn't empty and someone came and stole, stole Jesus' body and the disciples cooked up this whole story and wrote these things down, if that was the truth, you would expect to find four identical accounts. Couldn't they have gotten together and ironed out their stories and said, we're all going to tell it in the exact same way? And another thing you wouldn't expect to find is to see that there would be women who would be the first witnesses of these events. In the first century culture, women's testimony carried very little weight, wasn't admissible into the court of law. And so you would expect if they wanted people to believe their story, they wouldn't write in women as the first witnesses to these events. And so that speaks and encourages us to the truth of what we find. Now let me come back to the story then and keep walking through John chapter 20. So Mary comes and sees the stone rolled away and as you continue to go through the chapter, she runs and she goes to Peter's house and it says there's another disciple there, the one whom Jesus loved. That's probably John himself. And she tells them that the stone was rolled away. So they decide decide to run and and John actually outruns Peter and they get to the tomb and they look in and Peter races inside and they find no body it's empty the grave clothes are folded up and John tells us that that is what caused him to come to belief and then the story continues and it comes back to Mary. She's still there at the tomb weeping. She hasn't yet figured it out. And she hears the voice of who she assumes is the gardener. And John tells us how her eyes were opened. And she realized it's her risen Lord. And so her heart is thrilled then at that moment. And then you come to verse 19. And John tells us of the account of that still that resurrection night, that first Sunday... The disciples are in the upper room, or they're together in a room, I should say. And the doors are locked, and, and John specifically tells us the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. Now, this makes sense, right? The one that they had banked all of their hopes and trusts and dreams on was just crucified, was just murdered by an angry mob who, who, who didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So they now are fearful, and they've got the door locked. Because if they can do that to Jesus, they're, they're coming for us next. And John tells us that Jesus enters the room. The, the people are astonished. He pronounces, peace, don't be afraid. He says that, that peace is here. Shalom has come. And, and he's in front of them. He invites them to, to touch his, the, his hands, to feel his body. They see the scars and, and they're overjoyed. And there's something of a commissioning there where Jesus explains that he's going to send them. And now that brings us to verse 24. Come to verse 24 and we're going to spend the rest of our time right here. And I want you to see specifically what happens with a guy named Thomas, because that first night on the first Sunday, the, the, the disciples were there, but Judas obviously wasn't there, the one who had betrayed Christ, and Thomas wasn't there as well. And, and we don't have any details of why. We're not sure why he wasn't there, but now you come to verse 24 and look at this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them. And when Jesus went, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! 
But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and the place my hands into his side, I will never believe. So here you've got Thomas and he's saying, the, the, the other disciples are saying, he's, he's risen, he's alive. And Thomas is saying, I'm not, I'm not buying it. He's, he hasn't been brought to belief yet. Remember, he, he did this once already. He, he bought into who Christ was. He gave up his life and had been following him for years. And, and, and now he doesn't want to just get caught up in some emotionalism. He doesn't want to get caught up in the fact of, well, because all of you say he's alive. He's not sure he's ready to buy into that yet. Now, history has dubbed him Doubting Thomas as if he's a hardened skeptic, as if he's extremely cold. And I'm not sure that that's entirely fair as much as, well, here, here's a man who's probably a very critical thinker. He, he he's really ch- wants to carefully weigh the evidence in front of him. And may, maybe all of them prior, when they were in the room together, maybe they, maybe they saw a ghost. Maybe they had a vision. I don't know. They said they touched him. But if I see the nail marks, if I see the hole in his side, then I, unless I see that, because I know the Romans are good at crucifying people, I've got I've to have the hard evidence and the hard facts. And so think about now where Thomas sits. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Now, in the way they counted, this is the next Sunday night. They would have counted the first Sunday and the next Sunday. So a week later, they're in the room again. And for an entire week, some of them are hearing stories of others that have heard for Christ, and and so their faith has been strengthened. But Thomas now has had time to reflect. And think about that. Remember, the disciples on their own had to come to faith. Remember, on that resurrection morning, like I said, they they were not... On Friday, when Christ was crucified, they they weren't saying, all we got to do is wait for Sunday. Their hopes had been crushed. That's why John goes to lengths to tell you, if you come back to verse 8, when John and Peter go into the empty tomb, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So think about this. For a week now, they've been piecing together this story. They've been thinking about it, and as of yet, they hadn't put it together. Sometimes we're very, very hard on them. Like, oh, doubting Thomas, why couldn't you just have faith? Well, they hadn't had the chance to think through everything and had it all written down. And so for days now, they've been playing it back and forth, and maybe Thomas is remembering some of those things. That, that at this point, just a, just a few days earlier, in the final hours of Christ's life, he had been telling them things like, After a little while, I'm going to depart and you won't see me. And then in a little while, you'll see me again. And Thomas has to be sitting there and perhaps he's remembered that. And we don't know. We're using sanctified imagination at this point. But maybe? Is this... Could he be alive? Like if he was alive, is is that why he said that that I'm going to go away and then I'm going to come back? Is that what he meant by that? Jesus also made a statement that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And maybe, well, Thomas has to play that over for a while in his mind. And he probably wants to believe, but at this point, he, he, he's not sure. Am I going to stake my hopes and dreams on that? And because I had for several years. And is Jesus really who he says he was? Then keep going. 
Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So Jesus has a supernatural entrance into the room and says, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand. Place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And you see Jesus come and, and John doesn't tell us Jesus wasn't with them when he heard Jesus when he... Jesus wasn't with the disciples when Thomas made the proclamation, unless I touch his hands, unless I put my hand in his side. Jesus wasn't there, and yet he has the knowledge of his followers. And he says, Thomas, oh Thomas, it's me. Touch, see, it's me. And John doesn't record Thomas' reaction other than simply... In, in, there's probably reason to believe that he doesn't need to feel. At this point, he does see him and he says, Thomas answered him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Now, this is a very significant statement. And again, as history has dubbed Thomas, doubting Thomas as if he's some hardened skeptic, at this point, his faith is one of the greatest Christological confessions of who Jesus Christ was. He doesn't say, why doesn't he say, it's you? Why doesn't he say, you're alive? Why doesn't he say, Jesus? He says, my Lord and my God. And for a week, he's probably been contemplating, if he were alive, what would that mean? He said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. And at this point, he sees him alive and everything starts to come into place. His life is transformed. He says, my Lord and my God. He realizes who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning, I ask you, if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that Easter is worth celebrating, if you believe Jesus rose from the dead, do you believe he's your Lord and your God? Do you believe he holds that claim on your life? You see, this is life transforming. It truly is. Let me keep going. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? This isn't, I don't believe, uh, though there's different ways of interpreting. I don't believe it's a rebuke of Thomas for having to have faith. He's saying, yes, you, you saw and now you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now through what will happen through the disciples, through these fearful men who are hiding out in locked rooms, now that they have seen and believed, they will go and spread to the world the true news of who Jesus Christ is and blessings upon all who have never seen and yet believe. I've never seen the risen Christ. I've never been able to put my hands into the scars, put my fingers into the scars on his hands and neither have you and yet many of us believe through the testimony of those who have. And Jesus realizes this is the next logical step and, and blessings on those who come to faith in Christ. And now John tells us in verse 30, this is why he wrote this book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wanted people to realize, listen, those of you who are waiting for a Messiah, those of you who are looking for a King, those of you who are looking for life, guess who that is? It's Jesus. Jesus is where we find life. And the whole reason he wrote that gospel was to tie all of those things together. And though there's many things he could have told us, he tied all of these together to help us see this is who Jesus is. 
And in many ways, this would be the end of the book that he says, this is who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And if you believe in him, you find life in his name. And yet there's an epilogue to the book, just as there's a prologue. Some of those themes come back, and there's another chapter that Kevin will walk us through next week. But this is, John has brought us full circle. He wanted to show us the glory of God, the Word who became flesh, that, that God himself came and became man, took on flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And John says, it's him. Who's the Messiah? It's Christ. It's the Son of God. And when you believe in Him, you find a life in His name. That's where the truest life comes from. So my question for you this morning, as we think about trying to apply this to different ones of us this morning, have you found life in who Jesus Christ is? What does it mean to believe in His name? Well, the idea of believing, or, or really we could talk about the idea of having faith in who Jesus Christ is, we're not merely talking about a mental assent to the gospel, that we believe the facts of the gospel are true. There's many people, Scripture says that the demons believe. There's many people who know, can recite facts. We're talking about faith the way some have put it, is that faith, you could use the letters of faith and do it as an acronym. You'll read this in the book that we give you on the way out. It's forsaking all, I trust him. Have you forsaken all and trusted in Christ? Do you believe in Christ realizing that you, you have no ability for a right relationship with God, that your sins separate you from a righteous and holy God, and, and that God in his goodness and justice must judge you in your sin, but in his love he sent the person of Jesus Christ to this earth who lived a perfect and sinless life that he was crucified not for his own sins, but to take the place of yours and mine. That he took upon himself the punishment for our sins and that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again. And that for any of us who would turn and turn from our sins and trust in Christ, believe on him, believe that his death provides salvation for us, that's where we find life. Have you done that this morning? Have you come to the place in your life where you've trusted in Christ for salvation? And so I would apply this truth to several ones of us in a few different ways. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, if you find yourself regularly rehearsing these truths and you're in church fellowshipping with other believers and you're saying, yes, this is my Lord and my God, be encouraged. We don't do this for nothing. Paul said that if the resurrection weren't true of all men, we were to be the most pitied. Well, guess what? The resurrection's true. This is where we find life. Be encouraged. Hang in there. The suffering that you might experience on this life is, is worth it. As Paul says to the Corinthians, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Don't, don't lose hope. Life is found in Jesus. It's not found anywhere else. Don't lose that hope unbelievers here this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, I plead with you, come to Christ for salvation. Turn from your sins. Let today be the day that you realize that you're a sinner and you need Jesus Christ. You can do that where you are, just by speaking to God in your heart and confessing your sin, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and paid the penalty for your sin on the cross, believing that he rose again. Turn from your sins and trust in God. 
To those of you that at least have some mental assent that these things are true, but you're sitting there and you're saying, what hasn't transformed my life? Yes, Yes, I think they're true, but I'm not sure it's really worth living for God with every ounce of my being. I don't see the need of giving up my hopes and dreams and what I think of as the perfect life to to follow Christ. I don't see the need of being in church regularly week after week. I don't see the need of being one of those weird Jesus people kind of like the guy up there talking right now. There's a few of you that might say that. That, yeah, sure, this is good. I came. I appeased family. I appeased those that wanted. But don't expect me to get crazy. If someone asks me, I'll believe it. But I wouldn't say it's transformed my life. Let me just plead with you. Let me plead with you. And and I don't do this in any way to come down on you or I know know I've joked. I know I've stepped on toes. Let me me say this in love. God, God loves you. He has so much more for you. Do you see it there with Thomas? Do you get it? Do you see it? He had... Jesus had revealed himself to all of his disciples and they believed in Thomas as the last one not believing. Do you see the love of the Father? He comes to him and he says, Thomas, it's, it's me. He pursues him, the last one. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, had this to say about the passage, but do thou, when thou seest the unbelief of the disciple, consider the loving kindness of the Lord, how for the sake of a single soul he showed himself with his wounds and cometh in order to save even the one. If Easter is true, if the tomb is empty, it is worth far more than a simple mental ascent to come to church every now and then and to proclaim the truths of Yeah, Christ died for me. It's worth far more than that. Do you see it? God loves you. He's pursuing you. For whatever reason, he brought you here this day when there's plenty of other churches you could have gone to. There's plenty of other families he could have put you in. And he wanted you to hear again the truth of the gospel. And if it's really true that Jesus rose from the dead, if it's really true that the tomb is empty, if it's really true that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for your sins, then we have no other response than to say, my Lord and my God. It ought to transform your life because Paul reminds us in Philippians that one day every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day everyone will make the proclamation that Thomas made. And if you at least mentally know it, but you're not living that way, let today be your eighth day when Thomas realizes it and sees the truth and says, my Lord and my God, God loves you. He's pursuing you. He wants the best life for you. And there's a few of you who are sitting there and you're saying, yeah, but if I give up my life for the kind of life you're talking about, well, surely that's going to be drudgery. My life is a lot more fun, we say. But here's the thing we forget. Here's the thing we forget. For Christians, those who are following Christ, we are never more who God made us to be than when we are the most like Christ. Christ is the one who most perfectly lived the human life. And therefore, he's the one who knows the abundant life. That's why believing on him, you find life in his name. In the book that you guys are going to get this morning, uh, a man named Brian Hedges has this way to say it. God's rescue plan is not a fire insurance policy. Jesus is concerned about much more than simply delivering us from hell. 
He wants to restore his image within us to make us like himself. That is why scripture puts so much emphasis on following Jesus, being his disciple, and becoming like Christ. But becoming like Jesus is not at odds with our humanity. The truth is that we are never more ourselves than when we are like Jesus. He is, after all, the perfect picture of what it means to be fully human. Do you need to give up the life that you are living, the one that's not satisfying, the one that isn't the abundant life, the one that Jesus offers in his name? I don't condemn you. I don't, I don't say it out of guilt trying to twist your arm. I say it out of love. This is, this is truly the best. It really is. There, there's nothing else that can satisfy. There's nothing else that gives you the answers you need for the hardships of life. There's nothing else that will give you the clean slate before God when you enter into his presence and need an answer for your sins. It's only Jesus and in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for the life that you have provided. Thank you for the life that has been made available to us through Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. May each person here believe that life is truly found in you. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.